This show is brought to you in part by Mack Weldon Menswear. For way too long, women have had all the nice underwear, while we men have toughed it out with dull, utilitarian base layers. My personal demon is socks. No matter which ones I buy, they're always like a tourniquet, threatening to amputate my feet. Enter Mack Weldon. They use smart design and premium antimicrobial fabrics to make incredibly comfortable, high-performance underwear, socks, and shirts that also look great. And for the holidays, or anytime, they've got fun gift packs like Buddy the Elf, which will pimp the recipient's sock drawer beyond all imagining, or Edward for the New Yorker in your life. Socks, t-shirt, and boxers, all in black. So check out MacWeldon.com today and get your drawers straight. And use the code THINK at checkout for a 20% discount. And now, let's get to think again. Hi there. I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. With the Think Again podcast, we're striking out into uncharted and dangerous territory. We want to see what happens when experts are asked to respond to interview clips on subjects they may or may not have any knowledge about. Each week, our producers dig deep into Big Think's archives, and they unearth ideas that are innovative, timely, or timelessly thought-provoking, and the clips are always a surprise to my guests and to me. Today, I'm very, very happy to be joined by Alva Noe. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley, where he also serves as a member of the Institute for Cognitive and Brain Sciences. His latest book is Strange Tools, Art and Human Nature, and it takes a look at how art works, how it confronts us, and changes the way that we think about ourselves. Welcome to Think Again, Alva. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to start with something that you've probably been discussing a lot lately, but uh, one of the chapters of your book, which the, whose title delighted me the most, is <laughs> I think you know which yeah, one I it did. is. Why is art so boring? Yes. Yeah. So why is art so boring? Let's start there. Well, I think that boredom is actually one of the gifts that art gives us, because in our lives it's so hard to be bored. We're so busy, our lives are so organized, they're so structured, and art makes us press the pause button. Actually, I shouldn't say it makes us, it only makes it if you give it the chance. Most of the time, if you go to an opening and look at people in the gallery, half the time they're not looking at the art, they're chatting with their friends and they're walking right through and they're moving right along. But when you do engage, all of a sudden, everything stops. Email stops, all the different things that structure and organize our lives are interrupted, and I think that that disorganizing moment gives us a chance to relive a kind of boredom which most of us haven't really had the chance to have since childhood. But that's only the first part of the process because when you're looking at this thing, you don't know what it is, you don't know what it's for, maybe it's not for anything, you don't even know whether it's supposed to be for something or what it would be for it to be something, everything gets called into question. But then you can start to make some decisions about what's going on and what it means and if you like, work your way out of being bored. And it's not easy. And that's, I think, one of the differences between art and all the other things, the technologies and media that surrounds us. Reasonably good art, it will give you some information that will enable you, if you question, if you look, if you think, if you engage, if you don't keep on walking, give you some resources to see it. I think that what you said is very interesting about difficulty. I mean, difficulty is not a very popular thing at this yeah. point. We don't willingly submit to anything that right. is difficult. Right. And by the way, I mean, people are terrified of boredom. I'm a teacher. I'm a university professor. And 
if a student in the student evaluation writes that the class is boring, that's considered a terrible thing. But my thought is, yes, boredom is good. Boredom is a time for you to think and for you to figure out what's meaningful and valuable and all this. My job is not to spoon feed it to you. My job is to, is to put you in a space where actually you've got to act. And so to me, you don't get an art experience by buying a ticket to go into the museum. You don't get the experience for the price of admission. You've got work to do if you want to have it. Because when I wrote that Why is Art So Boring chapter, I tried to really tap into art as something positive. Because my thought is that it's not just that bad art is boring, it's that art is dangerous, and it's dangerous in a way that one of the dangers is being bored. Just as like having your heart broken is one of the dangers of falling in love. It, <laughs> it, it, they just go together. And so I was thinking about ways in which boredom is a positive idea, and then I remembered that I used to be really hard on my son. He's 14 now, but when he was maybe 10, he would often complain of being bored. And I thought, how could you be bored? Life is so interesting. There's so much cool stuff around you. If you're bored, just open your eyes, look around, take an interest, don't be lazy. You're bad if you're bored. And I suddenly thought, maybe not. Maybe his boredom was a kind of dissatisfaction with what was expected of him and his refusal to play along. So it's not that boredom is good, it's that I think art, by letting us get bored, reveals something to us about what we've been doing to avoid it. All right, on that note, I think we, um, not out of boredom, but for other reasons, we should go ahead and see what the producers have in store for us. The first one is Emmanuel Derman. He's a author and professor of financial engineering, and it's called, There's Enough Math in Finance Already, What's Missing is Imagination. In some sense, all of finance is about imagination because finance is about saying, what should something be worth today based on what I think is going to happen in the future. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. And so all financial models are specifying in some way an imagined future and then saying, if that future is true, what should I pay for something today? So for example, looking at CDOs, which sort of came a cropper in the big um, financial crisis, essentially human beings are saying, what will housing prices do in the future? What will defaults on loans be and defaults on mortgages be? And given my imagined scenario for the future, what should I pay for something today that's sensitive to that future behavior? The big failures, I think, are failures of imagination, not of mathematics. The big mistakes are when you don't think of something that does come to fruition eventually. Maybe one of the reasons why he's making an opposition between mathematics and imagination he didn't really say this, but it was kind of the spirit of the clip, maybe, is that he thinks that if you think, as he's talking about it, finance is about, is about math, then maybe you think that there's kinds of certainties that you can have that you can't really have, or, or that you can turn to the numbers crunchers and just sort of know how the market is going to change. Or, or, and, and maybe what he's trying to say is it's a more delicate affair than that. And it doesn't, it's not going to reduce to a calculation. Yeah, I mean, this is what supposedly happened in the 2008 financial crisis that, like, economists had really misunderstood human nature and the way that, like, in creating the mathematical models that were supposed to predict how people would behave, they thought that people would make rational decisions and always behave in their own self-interest. Mm. And it turned out that that wasn't always the case. I don't really understand the financial crisis that we just all lived through. But, um, <laughs> Nor do I. Yeah, I guess not all of us have, are kind of through it. But I mean, about models, you know there's the expression garbage in, garbage out. Models right. are only as good as what's put into them. As their, their predictive accuracy is only going to be as good as, as how much thought goes into them. 
So in a way, a model itself, deploying mathematics, is going to be a very imaginative activity. And doing it well is, right. is going to require really sound attention to what matters in the situation. Yeah, and I do know of Emmanuel Derman that he was a quant on Wall Street, so he was like one of those guys that makes the models. But before that, he was a physicist. He was a theoretical physicist. And I imagine that that may be a somewhat rare trajectory. Maybe a lot of the mathematicians on Wall Street are like not too many of them come from the like far reaches of speculative mathematics and that many of them are more rooted in concrete things uh, since they're applying their mathematical knowledge to finance. And so that it can be easy to get stuck into not incredibly creative and flexible thinking that would sufficiently account for even many of the variables that you're trying to So uh, one interesting question is, we know that economists and finance people don't perfectly predict the future. So one question might be, is that just because that's a really hard task, you know, a task fit for, for physicists? Or is it, as you were maybe getting at before, maybe they're not sufficiently imaginative? It's not that it's so hard, it's that they're somehow, they don't go about it the right way, or they make wrong assumptions about human nature, or, or maybe they're guided by their own short-term interests that blind them. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> we're, we, we, in the absence of, uh, of some Wall Street people to talk to, we are just speculating. But like, the stakes are so high in that world, yeah. you know, and I'm sure these guys are really well paid, and mm. the stakes are really high, and they must have a mm. tremendous amount of pressure to operate quickly and deliver results mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to deliver the results that the people who are paying them are hoping for, that mm -hmm. I think that it doesn't really lend itself to the kind, you know, as we were talking earlier about uh, boredom, it doesn't really give you necessarily the reflective time that you might need yeah, to actually consider all the possibilities. Hmm. All right, shall we see what the, yeah, shall we move, move on, on to the next yeah. one? Yeah. That was fun. That was fun. So this is Pendulet, and the clip is titled Pendulet's Bullshit Detector. This show is brought to you in part by the Art of Charm podcast. Who knew that plays well with others would turn out to be the most important thing on your childhood report card? Whatever you're trying to achieve in your life, it depends on connecting with and persuading other people. So why is that the one thing they don't teach you in school? Instead, we think of charisma as this mystical, elusive force that you either have or you don't. Nonsense. The Art of Charm podcast offers practical, immediately usable advice for networking, public speaking, negotiation, finance, fitness, and more based on solid clinical psychology and tested, replicable, real-world success, not pop psych speculation. Also, it's a thoroughly entertaining listen. There's nothing manipulative or magical about becoming a better communicator. It's a set of skills you can learn, and there's no good reason to spend your life held back by bad interpersonal habits. Go to theartofcharm.com forward slash podcast or find The Art of Charm in iTunes or Stitcher and start taking your life to the next level. And now let's get back to Think Again. You know, my, uh, my bullshit detector works first of all if there's something you really want to believe. That's what you should question the most. I don't question uh, bad news very much. But boy, the stuff that I really want to believe, I really question a lot. I grew up as a Christian, and I suppose at some level I wanted to believe someone was watching over me. But when I want to believe something, that's when I have to be the most careful. My friend, who I miss very much, Hitch, Christopher Hitchens, 
said that wanting there to be a God was like wanting to live in North Korea, to give away all your freedom. So uh, I guess my detector is that whenever someone uses what they feel as evidence instead of what they think as evidence or what they can prove as evidence, I'm very, very skeptical. The most important thing is to feel about things you feel about, should feel about, and think about things you should think about. You should not feel about the speed of light or evolution, and you should not think about love. You should feel I love you, you should think about reality. You should think about the world and feel about your heart. Well, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, he makes a lot of claims there. Like, somehow it feels to me that... Feels to you? <laughs> Don't you mean you think? It feels to me and I think that all of that is untrue in some sense. Like, he claimed many things, you know, it's very prescriptive, and I just don't know that I agree with the prescription. You yeah. should think about what you should think about, and you should feel what you should feel about. Yeah. How do we decide which is which? Yeah. I mean, there was one thing he said, there was one sentence where I thought, oh, there's an insight there. And that was when he said, if you say to someone, you know, upon careful consideration of the matter, I, <laughs> I've decided that I love you, that's self-defeating. It's yeah. too mediated by thought. It's too mediated by decision or calculation. It's like, on average, it seems to me a good decision to you know, feed my children and clothe them and send them to school. Right. But you know, maybe if the calculation had come out differently, I would have decided to do differently. There's something, there's something crazy about that because we are committed to our children and we're committed to, and when we love someone, it's not because we, we think we ought to, it's because, um, it's because we do. Right. So I think he's getting at something interesting there. But beyond that, I was a little unpersuaded by this, uh, maybe this is what you were saying, by the idea that there's a strict opposition or dichotomy between thinking and feeling. I mean, think about curiosity. Is right. that a feeling? Is that a thought state? What about puzzlement? This idea that some of these are two, two, separate, two separate spheres is, I think, a little simple-minded. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about writing. You know, obviously novelists sort of plot out what their books are going to be. They think about the characters. Mm -hmm. They think about the events that are going to happen. Mm -hmm. But the act of writing mm. a beautiful sentence, that is a sort of strange synergy of thought and feeling. Mm. When I think of a separation between thought and feeling, I think of thought as being extremely deliberate and my saying, okay, next I will put this word here and this word there and that word there, whereas there's a flow when writing yes. works well that, yes. that feels like thought plus feeling to me in the way yes. that I understand those yes. things. Or, I mean, this is an idea that a number of people have discussed for example, the, the neurologist Antonio Damasio wrote a book called Descartes' Error, which was basically the mistake of thinking you can factor out the intellect from certain kinds of emotions, that, that part of what it is to reason effectively in life is to have the right emotional responses in the right situations. Mm. So he tells the story of a, of a guy who calls up the dentist and says, I need to make an appointment, and the person says, well, we have a slot at this time, and we have a slot at that time, he says, yeah, do you have any other slots? And yeah, we have a slot at this other time, and a slot at this time. And he can't make a decision, because for him, they all feel the same. One of them doesn't feel better as a time to meet than the other. He's sort of indifferent. And from a purely rational point of view, there's nothing compelling him to go one way or the other. So his ability to practically reason with the task of making a dentist appointment <laughs> is destroyed by the fact that he has a brain damage that prevents him from having certain normal emotional responses. So that's, I guess, one of Western culture's myths and it goes back to Plato. Plato said that we have the passions 
and there's reason, and the passions need to be subordinate to reason. Reason needs to rule over the passions, but they're completely different. They're completely separate, and I, I just don't think that's true. You know, and we get into these fights because, you know, because we do have this scientific method, yeah. and and it seems to operate on the principle of sort of distrusting intuition or what is subjective, the subjectivity. Yeah. yeah. You know, we get this split between trusting the subjective and, and not. Yeah, that's right. I, just today I was thinking about if it would be possible to sort of get at the key of what, you know, what goes on in the scientific method. You know, scientists try to keep an open mind, pay attention to the evidence. You know, they give due weight to evidence in their search for the truth. They are on the lookout, like he was saying, to challenge their own certainties. Right. And to look out for their own blind spots and cognitive biases, assumptions. Right. Yeah, that's fairly described, I think, as letting thought rather than feeling guide you. But I don't know if I really want to get into the whole religion question that he was, that he was, <laughs> that he was also discussing. Because I'm, I'm not a religious person at all. I don't have a religious upbringing, and I don't find that I have a religious temperament. But that said, when I listen to people like Penn Gillette or Christopher Hitchens or, or others criticize religion for making these kinds of cognitive mistakes, I find it completely unconvincing. I'm very skeptical that religion is really about those particular kinds of cognitive mistakes. I mean, the, the values that people find in, in religion, the kinds of explanations they offer, right. I, don't, I don't think they're just stupid hypotheses. I think there's something else going on. There's some other kind of human experience right. going on. And it reflects a certain kind of almost emotional hostility to it to just dismiss it as a mistake. I mean, I can speak to this a little bit because I think what troubles those folks, I mean, what troubles me anyway, is just the bit about believing in a specific thing. I mean, it's the thing about, you know, this guy was the son of God, like these kinds of claims when you're talking to someone who may also believe in evolution or may also, you know, that that becomes somewhat cognitively dissonant, like yeah. it's hard to understand where someone's coming from who it's makes so that It's so complicated. I, I, comple <laughs> I, completely, I completely hear you, and I get the point. Um, and as I say, I don't believe yeah. in it. But I have a slightly different thought. I think to myself, oh, well, they say that he's the son of God, but that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, what is God, and what would it be for, something, for a human being to be the son of, of God? And then I think that the fact that it doesn't make sense must be something that they know as well as I do, and therefore out of a principle of charity, I think they must mean something different than what it seems they mean. Okay. And I ask myself, well, what is it they mean? Maybe these stories become a kind of an elaborate setting in which to theorize and investigate and explore and think about things which are genuinely important and that nobody else understands anyway, namely right. love, evil, morality, freedom, right. destiny, fear, punishment, I mean, all these different things that, that are active. I mean, Dan Dennett, who's a very good friend of mine, or others, point out how much damage religions have done. I don't, I don't deny it. I don't have any desire to defend some of the barbarisms that have been perpetrated in the name of religion. But here's the bottom line. There's so much that we don't know. There's so much that we take for granted, even though we don't know it, like, for, for example, that this is all not a dream, that I'm a little worried when people act as if they're so certain. It's, it's not that I think that the, religion peop the religious people might be right, it's that the reasons that he just gave for dismissing the religious person, it strikes me, don't add up, because 
he believes things that he doesn't have evidence for too, such as that the world didn't come into existence inside a simulation yesterday, together with all of his memories of a false past. You know, that the sun will rise tomorrow. How does he know the sun will rise tomorrow? Right. You might think, well, we don't know that. Do we act on faith? Is that what we do? Right. Okay. Well, yeah. I think we... Let's, that was a provocative one. Though. That was That's a really good. provocative one. And let's leave that one there and see what they've got for us last. So this is Michio Kaku, physicist and author and a staple on Big Think, talking about whether there are only three dimensions in other universes or whether there could be more. We believe, though we cannot yet prove, that our multiverse of universes is 11-dimensional. So think of this 11-dimensional arena. And in this arena, there are bubbles, bubbles that float. And the skin of the bubble represents an entire universe. So we're like flies trapped on flypaper. We're on the skin of a bubble. It's a three-dimensional bubble. The three-dimensional bubble is expanding. And that's called the Big Bang Theory. Now you ask a question, what about the dimensions of each bubble? Well, in string theory, which is what I do for a living, that's my day job, in string theory we can have bubbles of different dimensions. The highest dimension is 11. You cannot go beyond 11 because universes become unstable beyond 11. But within 11 dimensions, you can have bubbles that are three-dimensional, four-dimensional, five-dimensional. These are membranes. So for short, we call them brains. So believe it or not, we now have a candidate for the mind of God that Albert Einstein wrote about for the last 30 years of his life. The mind of God in this picture would be cosmic music resonating throughout 11-dimensional hyperspace. So this kind of thing definitely pushes to the limits of my tolerance which may be a failure of imagination. I, I have no idea really what he's talking about, and I find it hard to believe that there is anyone who actually knows that 13 is too many dimensions. It's very, um, <laughs> it's sort of interesting that he ended turning to religion, in a sense, speaking about Einstein's mind of God, because it had that quality of, of mystery, and even mystery-mongering, the pictures he was using, the metaphors, the, the brain, the pea brain, the bubbles, the floating. You know, what about the hyperspace? Is it inside something too? I always wonder how you draw limits to these metaphors that physicists use. My belief is, and I, I'm not saying my feeling, my belief, but it's a belief that's, on, that's formed on the basis of very little knowledge. My belief is that probably there is a really elegant mathematical formalism that gives an account of everything he said and everything fits in and if this is you know if this parameter is set then this is the case and right. and that if the if you do go above 11 dimensions that will have some very definite mathematical consequences which are given a physical interpretation but what i wonder and i don't know i'm sorry <laughs> your <laughs> listeners i hope i hope they will think no less of me <laughs> but um i wonder whether it has any genuine empirical confirmation or what that would even look like i guess the question that i have and philosophy gets attacked for this sometimes as well. Like, how much can we be out here dancing on this limb on the far reaches of speculation, whether or not it's underpinned with mathematics, if we are like centuries away from being able to test any of it before we look down and get vertigo and are like, what are we doing, where are we kind of mm -hmm. thing? Does that matter? Like, should we just keep going? 
you know, you've, you've written a lot about consciousness and neuroscience and the way neuroscience is trying to kind of pin down consciousness mm -hmm. to the meat of the brain. Folks like Dennett, I guess, would argue that, that you're too far out on a limb if you want to talk about consciousness in the absence of, like, looking at the matter. Yeah. Well, Dennett, Dennett and I actually, on this question, are pretty closely aligned. We, we're, okay. We, um, we're both sort of skeptical about the way the term consciousness tends to be thrown around by people who are looking for it in the brain. We have slightly different ways of criticizing some of the contemporary work in this field, and it's certain important places that we part. I had a very loose and probably yeah. mistaken understanding of him as yeah. a sort of materialist, at least in the sense of that we should look for consciousness in the quote-unquote meat. He thinks our minds are realized in our brains, but I think he would also say the way we conceptualize the brain when we're thinking about the mind is always in relation to its function in the actual life of an embodied organism. So his is, is, a, is a view that gives due recognition of the importance of the brain without being quite reductionist. Um, mm. I, think he has a, I think he has a very subtle view. But going back to the snippet that we just watched, you know, all science deals in, with idealization, you know, asks questions about what would happen under certain circumstances. So for example, if I were standing on a train embankment and a train went by at the speed of light, <laughs> what would I see? Or, you know, the, the right. kinds of questions. And that sort of thought experimentation has allowed scientists to make radical breakthroughs. For example, the special theory of relativity, or the theory of special relativity of Einstein, right. which I kind of sort of a little understand. But what's interesting to me is it's very much on the boundaries of philosophy. Even Einstein's work was on the boundaries of philosophy, but not because it was speculative, but because of the way in which it was really rethinking fundamental concepts and asking, asking questions about, you know, what is simultaneity? What is it to make a judgment that two events are happening at the same time? What does that presuppose about causal relatedness and right. time? In other words, there seemed to be kind of a deep analysis underlying it. When you start to get into quantum mechanics, it's hard to say the same thing because quantum mechanics results are so counterintuitive and they don't make any physical sense you start to wonder, something's got to be missing. You know, a particle can't be in two places at once. Um, why can't we measure you know, the position and the velocity at the same time? Right. What, what are these indeterminacies that are revealed in the quantum universe? And I think that physicists are still thinking through the implications right. of, of that. Now, this is one step beyond. I can't even tell, is it speculation? Is it mere formalism without any empirical basis? Is it actually philosophy? Is he trying to analyze what a universe might be, or is it an elaborate story, not unlike the Bible that we were talking about before, right. a story within which we can then fit different pieces. Right, uh, right. Because it could be, I mean, I have heard this criticism made that string theory has gotten detached from reality. Yeah, um, and, and that's just an interesting question. Like, is there a point at which somebody is supposed to say that the distance between theory and practice is too much, or are we not supposed to say that, you know. So you're actually almost, you said this in the beginning too, you almost feel a little bit, a little bit offended. <laughs> There's something a little self-indulgent, maybe even immoral going on here. It's sort of, it's unbridled. I, I, I don't want to be the one to tell them to stop. It's glorious yeah, yeah, and like yeah, people yeah. love it and, and it probably, and it may very well yield some like both beautiful and useful things and, <laughs> and not everything needs to be useful. Yeah, I may feel a bit 
intellectually threatened by it because I have no idea what they're mm. talking about. Mm. I don't know what the underpinnings are, and I just am sort of like, so what? Like, where are we going? You know? <laughs> right, there is the question, just what does it mean for it to be true? I think that you know, whether or not it's useful, like whether or not it has applications that will you know, right. help humanity, is a separate question from whether it's true. But right. what does it mean to speak of multiple universes? Are universes separate places? What's not clear to me is whether these guys care whether it's true anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. That's the thing. Yeah. And then maybe that's totally fine, you know? Right. <laughs> I don't right. know. Alvin Noe, it was great yeah. having you on Think Again. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Great, it's a pleasure to be here. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I wanted to tell you all that we made iTunes best of 2015 podcasts list. And I wanted to thank you for listening and rating and reviewing us and giving us your feedback over the course of the year. It's been a really exciting year and next year is going to be even bigger and better. If you're a holiday person, I hope you have a great holiday next week. The day after Christmas, we'll be back with neuroscientist Daniel Levitin. See you then.